Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. It's not too late to say Happy New Year, is it? The papally mandated two guests today. Law prof and historian Samuel Moyne will talk about the legal and political issues around attempts to exclude Donald Trump for the presidential ballot, and the journalist Alex Press will review the year in labor. It was a pretty good one. Several weeks ago, the Colorado Supreme Court ruled that Donald Trump was ineligible to appear in that state's presidential ballot in November because of his role in the January 6, 2021 riot at the Capitol. It based this decision on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which says in part, No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress, or elector of president or vice president, or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States, or under any state, who, having previously taken an oath to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same. The insurrection the passage refers to was the Civil War, which uncontroversially qualifies as an insurrection. Was January 6 comparable? And more relevantly, was Trump's role in January 6 comparable? Or is this part of a ploy by Democrats to block Trump's nomination because they fear losing to what Spy Magazine used to call the short-fingered vulgarian? Certainly the latest polls show those fears to be well-grounded. They have Biden losing massive amounts of support among black, Latino, and younger voters, groups he cannot win without. Here are the analysis from both a legal and political perspective as Samuel Moyne, a professor of law and history at Yale. He's in the ploy camp, as am I. Moyne's latest book is Liberalism Against Itself, published by Yale University Press. Samuel Moyne. Let's talk first about legalities and then uh, politics. Can Trump be disqualified for insurrection even though he was never tried, much less convicted of any crime? Sure. It just requires judges, or in Maine's case, the Secretary of State, to conclude that this old essentially forgotten section of the 14th Amendment called the Disqualification Clause applies. And the fact is no one knows whether it does because it really hasn't been discussed for more than a century. It's absolutely hilarious if a few weeks ago you'd asked even constitutional law experts what Section 3 of the 14th Amendment was, they wouldn't know. And now everyone's suddenly an expert on it. (laughs) The fact is that There's just a big political decision to make about what it means because it turns out to be pretty unclear. And what's happening is that under the cover of law or in the guise of law, which is what law usually involves, political actors are making political decisions. And I'm not saying we shouldn't affirm those decisions if they make sense, but I think we have to fight through the temptation to think that there's a clear law that definitely applies one way or the other. How did this Colorado case come to be? Who brought it? And what was the reasoning involved? And uh, would it stand up to scrutiny? The case was decided first at a lower court level and then by the Colorado Supreme Court. It was a four to three decision, uh, so very close. But actually, there was a lot more agreement among the judges, all of whom were appointed by Democrats. And basically, some citizens brought a challenge to Donald Trump's inclusion on the Colorado ballot, and that went all the way to the Colorado Supreme Court, just as it will go to the United States Supreme Court, since it's the case is about the interpretation of a federal constitutional provision. It's just it started out in state courts because in our wacky system, states <laughs> run elections even for national office. Um, yeah, I was about so, to ask that question. Um, is, is a state the right venue for deciding these sorts of decisions? It is in our system, which no one would design, I hope, from scratch today. But remember, the federal constitution doesn't even have a right to vote in it. What that has meant is that states have historically gotten extraordinary latitude around how they design and run elections. Now, there are some constraints that the federal constitution imposes, and when that's arguably the case, first, there's going to be a state court that decides if state arrangements are unconstitutional on a federal level, and then at some point, it'll be appealed up. Now, in the Colorado case, there are first a lot of 
questions about whether the case was viable under Colorado state law, over which that Supreme Court is the ultimate authority. But on the federal constitutional question, Donald Trump has a right, which he's going to exercise today or soon, to appeal that part of the decision up to the federal Supreme Court. And then Maine was just a Me Too thing? decision by the Secretary of State? There's lots of attempts. Um, This is an interesting history, which someone will tell, where some scholars really first suggest that this forgotten provision is applicable to Donald Trump. And then there's an attempt to find actors who will test that in the courts. And so I, I forget the exact number, but in the teens of states, there are attempts to take Trump off the ballot under this federal constitutional provision, the 14th Amendment, Section 3. And Maine just has this strange procedure under its state election rules where the Secretary of State decides whether this provision applies, not the state Supreme Court in the first instance. So there are going to be other states potentially where, as in Colorado, the state Supreme Court rules Donald Trump ineligible under this provision. And then all those cases will be consolidated until the Supreme Court of the, of the United States rules after which that precedent will be applied in the state courts in future cases. And speaking of state control over election law, would it be theoretically possible for a state legislature to decide that, oh, we're going to decide how to allocate the electoral votes and it doesn't have to be uh, in accordance with popular vote? First off, there's a tangled history to that because, of course, the whole purpose of the Electoral College was not to have the assignment of electoral votes track the popular vote. And then that was changed under custom and law as time passed. There has been a big dispute over whether the state legislature can override state courts. That was the famous Moore v. Harper case in which conservatives contended that the federal constitution vested state legislatures with absolute plenary authority to decide what happens to the electoral college votes in each state. But basically, Absolutely. I mean, electors have a lot of latitude still under our system, and we do not yet have a democratic system for electing the president of the United States. And I don't just mean that the electoral college votes are accumulated state by state. I mean that there's no absolutely hard and fast rule that electors follow the popular returns, even state by state. Yeah, as you said, the Constitution grants no right of the citizenry to vote directly for president, right? That's right. So what what that means is that maybe for good, maybe for bad, states were given lots of power to shape the electorate in their states. And that could have been at the beginning by exclusions based on gender or propertylessness, not just race. And some of those reasons states could cite to exclude voters from the roles in federal elections, you know, including in the 1960s, things like literacy, have been eroded by federal Supreme Court decision. But it's still the case that there's no right to vote in the U.S. Constitution. And that's because states can have all kinds of exclusions based on their sense of how to organize elections, like What do you have to do to vote absentee? What do you have to do to even be registered to vote? Well, that's all a matter of state law. And the federal constitution doesn't have a ton to say about those kinds of exclusions. Uh, Returning to the question of Trump uh, and his guilt around insurrection, I personally think he's guilty of insurrection, but my personal opinion shouldn't necessarily have any legal standing. What would the standard of proof be? Just as you said, just as some enough judges decide that uh, he's guilty without an actual formal trial? Well, I'm a realist about law. So as I mentioned, I think like there can be a lot of disagreement on legal questions. And then what matters is who has the votes. And so to me, the hilarious thing about all this is that instead of having election of the people, we have an election among judges. And instead of having an election about who's the best leader, we have an election about what the meaning of some forgotten provision of the Constitution is. Now, the fact is that there are legal arguments to make. I guess my trouble with the Colorado decision is that there are seven hurdles that you have to survive 
to get Trump off the ballot. And it's not like all of them are the same. Some are easier than others. But the idea that none of them trip you up seems impossible. So to me, a strong one it involves the First Amendment. The First Amendment protects political speech unless it's inciting of violence. And some conservatives have said, well, look, you know, the 14th Amendment came after the First Amendment. And so there must be like an exception to the First Amendment in the case of, let's call it insurrectionary speech. But the fact is, you could argue the reverse, that, well, the 14th Amendment presupposes the First Amendment. And so, like, one big question the Supreme Court might deal with is, did Donald Trump's speech on January 6th cross the line from political speech to inciting speech? Then there's the whole problem of, like, well, what is an insurrection? Donald Trump organized a kind of what we call an auto coup, an attempt to perpetuate himself in the office to which he was legitimately elected in 2016. But is that an insurrection or is it really what he did in speaking on January 6th, his relationship to the flash mob, etc.? And all of these things require a lot of analysis of what factually went down that day, as well as what the legal standard is to count as an insurrection. Does it involve taking up arms and shooting at people? in an attempt to overthrow the government? Well, that's not exactly what happened on January 6th. And then Donald Trump's relationship to whatever you think happened is that he spoke in favor of it or maybe egged people on or incited them. So that's another hurdle that judges would have to get over. Then there's a really big hurdle, I think, which is the so-called implementation problem. So if you just read the 14th Amendment, One thing it clearly does in Section 5 is give Congress power to enforce the amendment through what's called appropriate legislation. And in the one case that we have in the record decided on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, it wasn't in the Supreme Court, but a Supreme Court justice and indeed the chief justice named Salmon Chase was involved. He said, that Congress has to pass implementing legislation for Section 3 to take effect. In this case, it hasn't. And so there's a very big problem that the one thing that's closest to a precedent for the decision the Supreme Court's going to have to make around the meaning of Section 3 says that this situation doesn't fit because Congress hasn't acted. And there are some other similar kinds of hurdles. So like I would say that the Colorado Supreme Court's decision is like probably right about each of the six or seven issues it has to take up to get to its conclusion. But if it's only 80% likely to be legally correct on seven issues, that means that probably one of them it's wrong about. And Donald Trump only has to win on one of these issues to keep the result from materializing. And so I think most lawyers who have studied this, and again, they've only studied it in the last five minutes, have concluded (laughs) that there's very little chance the Supreme Court will agree with the Colorado Supreme Court because it has so many ways of finding Trump eligible. You mentioned the fact that Donald Trump hasn't been found guilty of insurrection by a jury. I think it's very significant for the kind of political question you want to talk about that the Colorado process didn't involve a jury, but legally, very few people think that you need a jury determination around insurrection with which Donald Trump hasn't been charged in these other prosecutions to rise to the level of a Section 3 rationale for disqualification. But there too, there's an argument. So It's kind of a mess, but I guess my conclusion is that precisely because it's a mess, precisely because the law is unclear and Trump has so many arguments to make that are not totally outrageous, we shouldn't rely on the law because no one can regard these decisions that judges are making as anything but political because they're so, let's say, opportunistic. I'm speaking with Samuel Moyne, a professor of law and history at Yale. And of course, the 14th Amendment came out of the Civil War, and that was unambiguously an insurrection. Things are rather more ambiguous around this. 
Correct. So that that goes back to the factual thing I I mentioned in one of the op-eds I did on this. It's true, of course, that the Reconstruction and the 14th Amendment involved a noble political project. And especially if you're concerned about the endurance of racism in this country, you'd have every reason to want to sign on to that Reconstruction political project, W.E.B. Du Bois and so many other great African-American intellectuals have done so, and they're being rediscovered in our time of anti-racism too. But it strikes me that the political project of Reconstruction was very different. It presupposed beating the other side decisively by force of arms, and then trying to govern the South with that on the basis of that military victory. And that's why Section 3 banned from service those who had participated in insurrection. Our situation seems to be radically different because, in a sense, the Civil War hasn't happened yet. You have massive support for Donald Trump. Millions of people want to vote for him. And there hasn't been a kind of democratic process by which to either resolve our disagreements with those who support Trump or decide they can't be resolved and some other solution is necessary. So invoking Section 3 in this context would be like saying that the Constitution forbids secession before the Civil War, but then not being honest that what you're really saying is that if people on the other side from you politically want to secede, you're going to declare war on them, which is what happened to produce the Civil War. I'm hoping we can avoid civil war in this country, but for that very reason, it seems to me that preempting the need to convince our fellow citizens not to vote for Trump is an enormous mistake, especially if we want to avoid having to face them down militarily. Okay, that that brings us to the political side of this. Um, It looks to me, putting this bluntly, but I think this is true, that Democrats are unable to beat Trump politically or afraid they can't beat him politically. Yep. So they're trying to beat him with what looks like legal trickery. And an awful lot of people are going to read it that way because it seems to be correct. I'm completely with you. And as I've pointed out, this is a kind of dark side of the Trump era that there's endless talk about saving democracy. But actually, what motivates a lot of that rhetoric is fear of democracy, fear that it actually allows Trump to win and makes him more and more popular. It can't be missed that we're at a time when these legal hijinks are coinciding with Joe Biden cratering in the polls and Donald Trump going from strength to strength. And so there is an argument, obviously, that democracy requires rules and there are legal exclusions like 34-year-olds not being allowed to run for president that have to be enforced like other election law to even have democratic processes. But you're, I think, on very firm ground as far as I see that when you have some pretty weak precedents, you look like you're grasping at straws when you say, we've already agreed that Donald Trump can't run when most of the country actually supports him. And what it really conceals is that you're turning to, let's say, tactics out of weakness when you fear your own ability to be strong and popular in the electoral contest that you claim to be defending. I hope that the Democrats, it's not like there's a master plan uh, that Joe Biden has to deploy these tactics. That it, it depends on a lot of actors over whom he has little control. But if he and his folks are not trying to figure out how to win in 2024 and win handily, because we know that's required in our system, given the Electoral College and, and Trump's penchant for contesting the reality of the results, then we're in a serious pickle. And my worry, and I think you know, I'm, I'm just agreeing with your worry, is that these tactics are distractions from the absolute need to present a credible program to the millions of voters who are undecided or supporting Trump because they don't think the Democrats are credible, not just when it comes to democracy, but when it comes to 
you know, equality and justice. Well, and it's also a lot of genuine discontent out there about inflation, about uh, the uh, deepened U.S. involvement in two wars, uh, foreign wars, uh, that a lot of people are skeptical about. The discontent among the public is, you know, if the only mode of expression they have is to be pro-Trump, it's too bad that there are not other ways of expressing their discontent. But that discontent is real and must be listened to and not dismissed through legal maneuvers. I agree. I, you know, it's a shocking time when Trump's victory in 2016 is really a protest vote about the mismanagement of domestic and foreign policy by elites that were basically very similar across party lines in a militaristic consensus and neoliberal consensus, which you and I have talked about before. And instead of trying to figure out how to break that consensus so there can be a working class party that is not as militarist. The Democrats in particular have uh, evaded the warning of 2016. And even as they claim the sky is falling on democracy, they refuse to learn themselves from their own betrayal of the promise of democracy. And the voters are not confused because these polls are coming out and they're absolutely staggering among young people who supported Joe Biden in droves have completely abandoned him around the Gaza war and other horrendous mistakes. And it's not just the erosion of a few percentage points here and there. It's that Biden beat Trump by 30% among young people. And now it looks as if young people are supporting Trump by a small margin. And that's an absolute catastrophe morally, quite apart from strategically. And if the Democrats don't face these realities, which are the real ones, because what ultimately matters is their policies and popular support for them, then we're going to face a very dark time. And it's really not clear what the Democrats' strategy would be if Trump were denied the nomination, since uh, half their campaign seems to be about being the not Trump. Correct. I think it would be For many Democrats, the so-called liberal resistance, they have always preferred familiarity to self-correction. And so the devil they know, someone like Nikki Haley, who's like an old school neocon, is somehow preferable for the Democrats to Donald Trump, who was less of an interventionist and killed fewer human beings on the world stage than some other Democratic and Republican candidates. And it's not obvious that the Democrats would have a better time of it facing Nikki Haley because she'd be quite popular too. It's really, even if you get in the mindset of the kind of centrist Democrat, it's kind of unclear how this particular tactic would help them, but it's being pursued anyway. And finally, this seems to be yet another instance uh, in a long-term liberal strategy of using the courts to accomplish political goals that they cannot accomplish um, through more conventional means, democratic means, like organizing a constituency and getting people to vote for you. We've seen this with reproductive rights, uh, civil liberties issues, any number of things. The Democrats seem to prefer litigation, and more broadly ruled by experts, over anything resembling popular mobilization. And this really kind of emerges somewhat logically from that, doesn't it? It does, and it's it's a crutch, and it's it's a bit of a tragedy, too, because remember that Biden came into office after Mitch McConnell's packing of the Supreme Court, promising to take a look at the Supreme Court and consider reforms. And he called together some elite law professors to think about the Supreme Court. And while that led nowhere, and certainly not to Biden taking any positions it did mainstream in liberal circles a kind of debate about whether this reliance on the courts to achieve political ends had been wise. And yet, now we're back in the same syndrome. And it's just one more way in which a lot of us worry that Biden's presidency is a missed opportunity to respond to the past few decades of history and make a cleaner break 
with some of the mistakes the Democratic Party has committed in the past. That was Samuel Moyne, a professor of law and history at Yale. You may have noticed Moyne talking about the possibility of civil war. As I was editing the interview, I emailed him to ask if he meant that literally or figuratively. His response? Just figuratively, unless it happens, punctuated with a question mark, followed by a smiley face. You gotta wonder. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Here's a bit from the DJ Sarah Landry's New Year's Eve 2024 mix featuring a rant by the late comedian Bill Hicks. Sorry for the censorship, but we operate under FCC rules. Next, some happier news. The labor movement had a good year in 2023, winning some organizing campaigns, though not Amazon yet, and staging some successful strikes, notably the UAWs against the big three automakers. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics data, which covers only actions involving a 1,000 workers or more, there were 12 strikes going on in November of last year, the largest number since 2000, and workdays lost to idleness, which is the BLS's term, not mine, were the highest since that year as well. The UAW's president, Sean Fain, not only led a successful strike, but also articulated their struggle as one for the entire working class and not just his membership. What happened and why? Here are the review of 2023 and organized labor is Alex Press. Alex is a staff writer at Jacobin on the Labor Beat. Aside from that magazine, she has a long article on how unions did last year in Business Insider, of all places. Alex Press. It was a pretty good year for labor. Partly a case of been down so long it looks like up to me, but not just that, right? How would you evaluate it? The sentence I've been using to kind of sum it up is that things are starting to feel like they're adding up to more than the sum of their parts, which again is, you know, in part an acknowledgement of exactly what you said, been down so long, things look up to me, but also the sense of things flowing into one another, right? Um, I quote the labor historian Gabe Winant in my year-end piece, and he says, you know, in addition to saying that he's more optimistic than he's ever been, you know, he pointed out that there have always been discrete highlights for the left when we look at the American labor movement. Chicago Teachers Union is something that everybody knows about in the past decade or so. There are always valiant rank and file reform efforts, different strikes, the teachers uprisings in right before the pandemic. But now it seems like people are actually quite literally working together. You know, I've been on the ground at so many of the strikes this year. And everybody knows each other. I'm talking to the writers. They're asking me who to get in touch with. That's an auto worker. The auto workers are asking me which Teamsters they can get in touch with. And there's just this kind of building up of, to put it, you know, in Marxist terms, it's like class consciousness, right? Not just trade union consciousness. There's this sort of growing radicalization that's going on. Again, not to say that there is, you know, we've we fixed the labor movement. You know, the unionization rate has not budged. So many things I'm sure we'll go into are still bad. But the things you would hope would be happening are starting to happen. Different siloed parts of the working class are really starting to back each other up. Um, and we see that not just in the strike numbers, which this year were over 500,000 workers in the U.S. struck, um, I think just under 400 discrete strikes. Um, but this sense of a real movement and a class movement, I think, is really distinct. Yeah, I'm reminded of the old labor note slogan, uh, put the movement back in labor movement, and it does seem to be uh, being put back in. Exactly. Thank God. <laughs> yes. You mentioned a couple of milestones in the last, I don't know, five or so years. Um, the teacher strikes, notably, the Chicago, uh, but also the red state ones. How significant were those as, as milestones, as sparks, catalysts? How do you analyze the tra trajectory? Where did this new energy come from? Yeah, I mean, I have a couple answers to that. I think just on the level of within the labor movement, I think if you were to trace the leaders at the rank and file level, as well as the new reformers who've been swept into the heights of labor, 
a lot of them will cite CTU as having not just inspired them, but having actually given them the tools for different things they wanted to do. I joke, you throw a rock at a strike, you'll hit a CTU mentee, right? Somebody who talked to somebody in the CTU about how to revitalize their union, how to pull off a strike. So I think that's a very real and concrete poll in the labor movement that I would point to that has then it's and now inspired so many people that it's not the only one when you talk about bargaining for the common good or kind of like a socially conscious community oriented union. Now there's many of them. But CTU, I think, really in the shorter term of the past couple decades has been that bright spot. But when I tell the story of what has happened, what led to this, this adding up, this qualitative shift in, in public excitement as well for the labor movement, I often draw the through line from, you know, there's the Occupy Wall Street movement, which while derided by many as having accomplished nothing, you know, actually was a transformative experience for a lot of very young people, as well as putting the language of inequality and class conflict back into the mainstream of American consciousness. You go from there through the Sanders presidential campaigns of both 2016 and 2020, as well as the uprising against police brutality in the summer of 2020, right during the pandemic. And you get people who experienced all of those things. It's easy for me to, to point to that because I am one of those people, right? I was 19 during Occupy Wall Street, and I went through all those movements together with those people. And it's, again, it's the same people, and they don't clock out their consciousness when they enter the job. Yeah, let's talk about that Occupy moment for a bit, because, you know, at the time it seemed... It was exciting, but it didn't seem to leave much of a trace. But I think that's wrong in retrospect. It really was a remarkable moment of transition. For someone like me, who was a, a red throughout the very dark days of the 90s and, and early 2000s, to see um, these kinds of issues, the 1% and all these class issues come to the fore, even if it sometimes seemed naive and disorganized and aimless, <laughs> yeah, um, but it did also mark some kind of change in consciousness, but also, as you're talking about, networking, um, social connections and things. So could you just describe what the, 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 the shadow of Occupy was 10, 10, 12 years later? Right. I mean, and I would extend this especially, I think, even more so to the Sanders campaigns. You know, they occupy kind of similar roles, I think, for a lot of people, which a lot of people had never heard this language before, right? In the United States, very few people have not just been in unions themselves, but even have parents that are in unions. Have ever seen any evidence of the possibility that working class people coming together can change their lives for the better, can change the world for the better. This idea that politics is not just electing a president, but actually something you can do every day. These were frames of thinking that Bernie shared with Occupy, um, the language of class conflict and class politics. And, you know, I think very concretely, not to totally dodge your answer about Occupy Wall Street, but, you know, I wrote in one of these pieces about this reflecting on this year that, you know, a lot of people, and I meet them all the time in the course of my reporting, you know, I'll be talking to a Starbucks worker who just organized their store and I'll start asking them about themselves. Why did you feel this was worth doing? It's almost always seems crazy to try to organize a union in America, given how stacked the odds are against you. And often, almost always, someone in that shop will say, well, I was a diehard Bernie Sanders supporter in 2016, and that was the first I ever cared about politics. Or I was a diehard Sanders volunteer in 2020, and then that campaign collapsed, and I thought, what should I do? Well, he said that working class politics is important. Why don't I go salt? Why don't I take a job in an industry, whether it's a new union like Starbucks or Amazon, or why don't I join and become a UPS driver and be a part of you know, revitalizing the Teamsters union? These are real things that people have been doing. And so I think often as a labor person, I always try to remind people that you know, labor politics does not move at the time scale of, say, a presidential campaign. And so while whether it's Occupy Wall Street or the Sanders campaigns did not accomplish, say, you know, the revolution, much less a presidential win, they don't disappear. And you have to kind of wait it out and see what people do with it. Um, and I think we're starting to see that the growth, things bearing fruit, if you were. Well, it's impressive and moving that uh, people didn't take the end of the Sanders campaign in 2016, 2020 was even more anticlimactic. But, you know, people didn't take that as a sign of defeat uh, and didn't give up and despair and then really dug in for the long haul. That's really impressive. Do you have any thoughts on why that is? Yeah, I mean, and to be clear, I'm sure many people did find it depressing. Um, <laughs> you know, the Sanders campaign had so many supporters. But I think, Again, it's probably not to just draw on my own experience here, but, you know, I got involved in left politics through Occupy. And I remember it being this kind of transformative thing to think that I can actually do something, you know, as a re regular working class person, young person, a woman, doesn't matter if I'm willing to put in the time, I can actually be a part of something important. 
And I feel like the Sanders campaign had a similar, you know, as much more movement vibe than most presidential campaigns. It was young people being swept up in something. That message that, you know, we joke about how Bernie just has two things he says, and he says them over and over. But that's actually a very effective strategy. And a lot of people took to heart what he was saying about we're not going to win X, Y, and Z without rebuilding the labor movement, that like the average working class person is actually the most important person. You know, all these things that I think if you're young, especially, and it's your first introduction to left politics, it doesn't matter if the guy, you know, you want him to win, but if he loses, well, you've already figured out what you're going to do. You're going to devote yourself to making the world better. And, you know, the guy who brought you into it, Bernie Sanders, is saying that it's not about him. It's about you. Then you'll keep going. I think it's as simple as that. You know, you're saying that he says the same couple of things over and over again. If you're an intellectual or a writer, um, you really shy away from that. Uh, You don't want to be saying the same things over and over again. You're always looking for something new to say, a fresh angle or whatever. But that really is important to politics, isn't it? Just to hammer away at the same thing over time uh, is the only way to get anywhere, it seems. Right. Yeah. I mean, there are many reasons for that. But I I often joke that this is funny, just tangentially. You know, I've been involved with various organizing, both as a News Guild of New York member and with the Writers Against the War on Gaza, organizing of writers and media workers. And I do kind of joke that this is it's like herding cats, because the whole idea is to distinguish yourself, to differentiate, to always have your name rather than, you know, subsume it to the collective. You know, everything comes with your byline. And yet it can be overcome even among writers. Um, But there is something inherent, yes, in the way I think we are pledged to think versus what actually an effective politics can be. Well, that's been one of the leading sectors for organization, too. Yes. My local in particular, the News Guild of New York, has been really pioneering, you know, almost no losses in new union elections, you know, waging effective strikes. And I think it's worth saying that one of our staffers, Chris Brooks, who used to work at Labor Notes, is now helping pioneer those strategies for the UAW. So as I said, these things are very connected when you start to get to the ground level and talking to the people. Um, The different segments of the class, I think, are starting to share strategy and, in fact, work together. Speaking of the UAW, I mean, that's an important thing here, uh, because, you know, we've been so used to seeing the energy and labor movement in the service sector, the public sector, but not to see the industrial sector so active, to see uh, the UAW winning, to see the president of the UAW wearing an Eat the Rich t-shirt. Yes. What happened in that union? Where did Sean Fain come from? Where did this new energy come from? Yeah, I mean, I won't, I'll try not to get bogged down too much in the details here. I've written quite extensively about the reform slate sweeping the UAW. The UAW, to give a mini little history lesson, obviously was just, to put it very bluntly, extremely corrupt until recent years. Um, in fact, 12 of their un- the union's leaders, including two former presidents, served prison time for corruption. They were skimming the dues. They were making deals with the companies and siphoning money towards themselves. You know, there's an almost comical, if it weren't so sad, detail in some New York Times story about this corruption where they would go out on vacation in Palm Springs and they actually bought so many luxury goods they needed to rent a semi to ship it back to Detroit. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> People know about Jimmy Hoffa, but I would say that the, the UAW scandal, it definitely um, rivals what was going on in the Teamsters long ago. Because of that, there was a federal monitor appointed. There was this kind of cleaning up of the union. And one of the things the federal monitor suggested and the UAW accepted was that they hold a referendum on whether to directly elect their leaders. Now, this might seem very basic, right? Of course, don't all unions do that? No, not at all. Um, And in the UAW, they had a delegate system that I will absolutely not bore your listeners by explaining. But basically, it made it so that the the reigning ruling clique of the union called the Administration Caucus, of which Walter Ruther was a member, it was the only caucus in the union through the entire union's history until a couple of years ago, they would basically rig the system and ensure that they kept winning and kept control of the union. So the union held that referendum, I believe, in 2021. Members voted that they wanted direct elections. Those direct elections were held in 2022. And there was a newly formed reform slate called Unite All Workers for Democracy, UAWD. I spell that out because I think listeners will probably either read about, read that acronym or hear about it. They should know about it. It's this incredibly powerful new reform caucus in the UAW. They backed a slate to challenge seven of the international leadership positions. So seven of the 13 international executive board seats. And they won six outright. And the seventh was Sean Fain. Um, that was for the presidency at the international level. It was so close, him and the, the incumbent, Ray Curry, that there had to be a runoff. And that election itself was so close. I mean, it was brutal. Every challenge ballot had to be counted and argued about because the the margin was just a few hundred votes. 
But ultimately, Sean Fain won that election. Now, Sean is this guy from, he's 55 years old, I think now. He was a union electrician from Kokomo, Indiana. Then he became a staffer for the UAW. He was involved in some of the national negotiations on the big three contracts at Stellantis. He was not of the ruling clique, but he also is not some secret cadre, right? He is not a longtime socialist or anything like that. I think when you listen to him speak, and he has, I would say, one of the most striking ways of speaking, really, I think, morally powerful, that it, that really seems to get to a lot of people the way he puts things. Yeah, those videos he did were really impressive. Yeah, I mean, he, uh, I, I joke that, you know, Sean Fain will quote both scripture and Malcolm X in the same sentence. Um <laughs> which is not a joke at all. He actually does that. He's, it took a while for the mainstream press to notice how much he quotes Malcolm X, but they too have finally noticed that. He's just this guy who, you know, he's a Debs-like figure. You know, he's this white Midwestern guy who's just outraged by the inequality and the way the rich control and, and degrade the lives of his fellow workers. It's very powerful to have a guy like that at the top. Um, he seems very open to, you know, taking cues from people who have more experience or more strong opinions on certain issues. You see that with the UAW endorsing a ceasefire in Israel-Palestine. But this guy's just kind of a regular guy. Um, and yet he's very, very good, much better than I think the American labor movement had any reason to expect. Well, that endorsement of the ceasefire was, um, you know, I almost fell over when I heard about it. <laughs> it was crazy. And in fact, I had asked Sean about, about Gaza the month prior um, and he, you know, um, punted and said he wasn't sure. And, and he was, you know, his focus was on building the union, which to me just says that when the pressure was brought on him, he was open to being convinced, you know, that is the sign of a good union leader, right? We want someone who isn't going to be this larger than life figure who knows everything, but a guy who is open to hearing what his members want and then doing it. Um, and in that sense, I was really, really proud and happy to see that he had, was not going to stop that pressure which the UAW has quite a history of stamping out pro-Palestine um, sentiment among its members. So it's a real shift. I'm old enough to recall the Vietnam War days and the labor movement did not distinguish itself then. It's just a remarkable transformation 40 years later to see this happening. Yeah, though I would, you know, we don't have to talk about Palestine all day, but I would say that, you know, there's a lot of the labor movement that still has no interest in, you know, speaking out on this issue. But the shift has been, just in the past couple months, has been really remarkable. Just want to emphasize that there are definitely still unions out there that have said, have decidedly said nothing or have, or have actually gone to Israel to show their solidarity solely with one side of that conflict. But yes, I, I mean, the American labor movement is finally starting to take the right side on, on fights that are, were very implicated in, as American workers. I'm speaking with the labor journalist, Alex Press. What have the effects been of changing demographics of the American working class? You know, it's not all white guys anymore. What's the uh, the effect of that been? I mean, it's a huge question. Uh, you would ha it's almost too big to answer in like a three minute soundbite for you. This is radio. Though, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's interesting in the UAW. It's funny, they now have almost 100, I think it's just over 100,000 of their members are actually higher ed, many of those being grad student locals. And People do not know that who don't follow the labor movement closely. Um, and it might seem almost like funny, like how are auto workers and Harvard graduate students relating to each other? How are they working together? Um, you know, I was in Detroit at one of these conventions this year for the UAW. And honestly, it was a pretty dynamic relationship. The, the Harvard students or the grad students knew how to read between the lines and, and put the right wording in for certain resolutions. And the auto workers knew how to actually win people to their side. And it was like, it was kind of a beautiful thing to watch them teaching each other these skills. You know, in a more general sense, you know, I think that these un the unions, you know, the demographic changes are, are kind of well underway. You know, when we talk about nurses and teachers kind of leading the way on certain strikes and certain more progressive outlooks and positions, you know, that's been true for a while now. And of course, we all hold up Sarah Nelson, the head of the AFA, CWA, the flight attendants union, as another example of this. Personally, I'm not wedded to the idea that demographics mean much of anything as far as someone's views. And yet I think you can see the effect that certain leaders are willing to take more, I don't know if you would call it left wing stands or just be more willing to fight um, because they've already had to fight in their lives. Um, I think that would be a kind of simplistic way of talking about it. But I don't see the demographic kind of issues as particularly relevant other than, I guess the one thing I do often say is that in covering new union fights, especially or strikes over the past few years, racism on the shop floor ends up often being the catalyst to a new union drive. That's something I've seen again and again, especially at Amazon, um, but not only at Amazon, um, certainly with Mexican workers and some food manufacturing plants as well. 
um, you'll often hear that actually this all started with a racist boss. And next thing you know, you have a union drive on your hands. Um, and I think that's something, again, that a lot of people who don't really know what's going on at the shop floor level, pundits tend to say, you know, race or class. Um, none of that bears any fruit um, when you look at what's happening on the ground in union drives. Um, so I think that is important. My friend and uh, frequent interviewee, Sam Gindin, formerly the uh, Canadian Auto Workers Union, makes right. a point frequently that the left and the labor movement need to be connected, but also separate, that mm -hmm. you need uh, a political left that is has one foot inside and one foot outside the labor movement to provide some kind of perspective, historical, theoretical perspective. Uh, but unions, by their very nature, are sectoral organizations and can't take the political lead. They need a left to take a political right. lead. How much is the changing political environment, the growth of a left within the Democratic Party and outside of it, uh, we've seen over the last 10 years or so. How much of an influence has that been on this labor energy? It's been a major influence. I mean, I mentioned the Sanders campaign. That might be one answer to this question in itself. Um, even though, you know, Sanders is running as a Democrat, you know, you can, we can talk all day about what the left really means or doesn't mean. The obstacle remains that America has no labor party. And it's true that there's only so far you can take an individual union or even a set of unions. Um, and we're running up against, I think, those obstacles once again. You know, how do you coordinate sectoral interests that might be opposed to one another? Well, you need a separate party that can kind of lead on this and can push the bounds. Despite that absence, you know, instead we have these reform caucuses within the unions, as well as DSA, which is playing a real role in some of this stuff. We talk about the need to coordinate across unions, across from non-union workers and union workers. And DSA has been filling that gap of this coordinating force. Um, it's a place where union members can both meet each other, share strategy. It becomes this like kind of backup auxiliary force for strikes. You know, you see DSA members reinforcing picket lines or delivering food or money. You know, that stuff's not nothing. And in fact, also some of the leading kind of workers on the shop floor leading strikes or new campaigns are DSA members. You know, it's not it's nothing to sneeze at, I think. You know, I think another really inter interesting institution that a lot of people outside of the left don't really know about is this effort called the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee, which formed during the pandemic as workers were experiencing, you know, immensely high risks at work as COVID spread throughout their shops and their management didn't tell them anything about who had COVID and who didn't. It's called EWOC, the acronym E-W-O-C. And EWOC is a joint effort of UE, the Electrical Workers Union, famously kind of the most red union in America, and in fact, hugely diminished because of McCarthyite anti-communist policies, um, and DSA. So those two organizations have formed this, once again, kind of a net to meet people who, you know, it helps workers organize when their shops are not of interest to existing unions. So say you're, you work at a rest stop off the highway um, or an Applebee's in a small town, you can contact Ewok and they'll hook you up with volunteer organizers with organizing experience to help you start those early pre-union fights. Those are the kind of things that a, an organized left can do, even those very small things that I think Sam is probably speaking to that you know existing unions just aren't going to do for a variety of reasons, These, this kind of coordinating function. That said, I think you can hear from how I started the answer that, you know, until we have something, whether it's a labor party or a much stronger DSA, we're still going to have these problems of coordination and the division of labor, if as it were, that Sam is probably speaking to. As we always do in these turn of the year things, we have to go to the other side of Janice's face um, and look forward. Uh, some of this has been the product of a very tight labor market. Uh, an unemployment rate below 4%. Uh, aside from that bit in the pandemic, it's been very low for years now. How important has that been? And will this militancy survive a rise in unemployment or a recession? When I do my litany of factors, and I didn't do it on when you first asked this question, but the tight labor market and low employment rate is critical. Workers, some will even say it in those terms, others will put it in other terms. But the fact that there's an understanding or a feeling among the working class that if it doesn't work out here, if I get fired for trying to organize or, you know, whatever might happen, the illegal retaliation by employers, that is just a constant in America. It's not a big deal because I can find something else. You know, in one of my pieces reflecting on on this year, I quoted this Trader Joe's United worker, the guy, this guy, Tony Falco. Trader Joe's United is a rare independent union effort in the United States. They've organized, I believe, stores in five states. Not very many, you know, when we think about how many Trader Joe's there are. Um, and yet it's a really interesting experiment. So I did kind of a deep look. I talked to a, a ton of the founding members 
And this quote by Tony really stuck out to me where he was explaining why he wasn't afraid of, you know, losing his job or being vilified by his employer, any of the things that can happen when you kind of stick your neck out as a worker. And he just said, being underpaid, I can get that elsewhere if I have to. And I think (laughs) that sums up basically what workers across sectors say to me again and again. And that is, yes, definitely concretely linked to a tight labor market. Whether this can survive, I think that's been a fear for all of us in the labor world since kind of the height of the pandemic. We thought, okay, we got six months and then they're going to retaliate and they're not going to let this stand, this tight labor market thing. Hasn't happened yet. People have actually, I've been surprised to see how little kind of grousing among capitalists there's been about this persistently tight labor market even now. At the height of the pandemic, of course, there was a lot of it. We always heard nobody wants to work anymore, blah, 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 all this stuff. You don't really hear it much these days. Not to say that I expect it will last forever, but I think there is a sense that time is of the essence and people are manically trying to not just win new unions, but lock in first contracts, lock in wins while the wind is at workers' backs. Um, Because we know that that does not last in the United States. It doesn't last anywhere. It certainly doesn't last in the United States. And of course, people are thinking as well about, say, 2024 comes along and we lose the one, I think, brightest spot of the Biden administration, which has been the NLRB. Um, a very aggressive and pro-labor National Labor Relations Board, we might lose that very soon. And not that that, I think, has unfortunately made a huge difference, but having a quasi-labor-friendly apparatus at the state level is not going to last very long. Um, So I think there is a sense of urgency, and none of us know if we can keep these gains once the tide turns against workers. That was Alex Press, a staff writer at Jacobin and a prolific chronicler of the ups and downs of organized labor. Fortunately, this is a period, unusually, in which the ups outnumber the downs. I was so caught up in conveying good news that I forgot to ask Alex about the downs. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, my go-to union ditty, Part of the Union, a 1973 classic by the Straubs. Till next week, bye. As a union man, I'm wise To the lies of the company spies And I don't get fooled by the factory rules Cause I always read between the lines And I always get my way If I strike for higher pay When I show my card to the Scotland Yard And this is what I say Oh